Hi there, I'm James Minor, one of the leaders of the church, and I just wanted to welcome you to our podcast. I hope it stirs, inspires, and encourages you. Our pastor, David Dark, will be preaching for us. Enjoy the message. The prologue. The location is an East London underpass on Friday night. Two individuals are walking together, but they don't talk to each other. They have been together since Tuesday. The two are striding down Echo Field, wall-tiled underpass, wind rustling, sometimes even howling during windstorms. Vehicles using the road overhead, pedestrians and cyclists sticking closely to the sides. A floor made of concrete, light fixtures in longer passages, colourful graffiti, posters and ads hanging on the walls, water running down the walls in rivulets, dripping from the ceiling, puddling on the ground, people turn into silhouettes from the light shining behind them, structural pillars in a particularly wide part of the underpass, but still, the two walking together, are still not talking. The hollow talk of footsteps, traffic thundering overhead, the amplified sound of cars driving through, water dripping from the ceiling and ticking along the floor, bicycles whirring by wheels bumping over cracks in the concrete, humming lights, Insects and moths buzzing around the light fixtures, distant sirens, people talking, small animals moving through the debris at the edge of an underpass, leaves being blown by the wind and scuttling along the underpass wall, pedestrians talking on cell phones as they walk, splashing through a puddle, the squawk of a bird, the hiss of a feral cat. But still, the two are still not talking to each other. Why don't they talk? Do they need a counsellor who specialises in conflict resolution? Do they need a lawyer? Who are they? And why are they not talking to one another? This is the last part of the dream team on God the Son. Last week was part two. This week is part three. And this week is called the legitimate reminisce. Reminisce. Indulging enjoyable recollection of past events. Few questions. We've asked the question. What happened with the fig tree? Why did Christ take the position he took in such a destructive miraculous act upon a piece of nature what did he see what traumatized him to the point that he would undertake a miracle which is so outside of the pattern and the flow in which he was undertaking his ministry within the borders of israel the second question Why could it be argued through the angel of the Lord 
a question in regards to who is a man's best friend? Why could it be argued through the angel of the Lord? A question, who is actually man's best friend? We're going to read our text. Zechariah 1 verse 12. Those questions will be answered in the last part tonight as we read Zechariah 1.12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and the Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry they held, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and the surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. The legitimate reminisce. Verse 13. The Lord God, the Father, answers the uncreated angel. As the uncreated angel asks God the Father the question, it is very similar as we have now the son who intercedes on his people's behalf. The father always answers the son on our behalf. In verse 13, it says, good words and comfortable words. This is the outflow of the conversation between the angel of the Lord and the Father, the contents of these words which are addressed to the interpreting angel, either directly or through the medium of the angel of Jehovah. The word of the Lord contains two things. Number one, the assurance of energetic love on the part of God towards Jerusalem. The assurance of energetic love on the part of God towards Jerusalem. Number two, the promise that this love will show itself in the restoration and prosperity of Jerusalem. Now, God often answers prayer with good words. With good words. It is possible to think maybe this is unacceptable or it's not meeting the criteria of what we're seeking the Lord for. For we're not necessarily looking for words. We're looking for action. We're looking for an intervention 
that manipulates our environment to bring our environment and the circumstances to an end that we require. And the problem with words is we could be underwhelmed thinking words are not sufficient. But what we must understand about the words that God gives to us in a time of crisis or within our prayers to him is when he does not immediately appear in great works. And those good words are real answers to prayer. When he doesn't immediately appear in the great works of what we require, the great intervention, the great arm of God, when he gives us a word, it is a real answer to prayer. It's not a cop-out. Men's good words will not feed the body, but God's good words will feed faith. Zechariah 1.13 And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words, good and comforting nikum, means solace, consoled. When the angel is now speaking to Zechariah by the communication that has trafficked from God the Father and the uncreated angel, the angel of the Lord, the outflow and the implication of that communication was solace and consolation, comforting words. These words would do its job. It will meet the end game. The end game is the people of God are at a place of disturbance upon their soul and their mind. And when their soul is disturbed, there is a clunkiness within their being. They're not having a peace that surpasses all understanding. But through the conversation of the angel of the Lord and the Father, the outflow is solace and consolation. Reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he speaks about the snatch, the harpezo, the rapture. And when he speaks about when God will snatch his people, will rapture his people. At the end of that narrative, Paul says, now comfort one another with these words. And what the Lord is communicating is, don't be so obsessed with the apocalyptic side of life. Don't be so enamored with all of the negativity on the media and all of the negativity on the internet. Feed yourself on the word of God. Feed yourself on words of consolation. Going through a period, a very difficult period of this COVID-19, which has been absolutely tragic, ghastly. But what can transpire is individuals, after getting the factual information that they need, 
after getting the information that is proper and the information that you need to digest in order to protect yourself and in order to carry out your day and in order to utilize prudence, wisdom and to utilize your nous in how to handle this crisis. But what some individuals will do is beyond the basic governmental information, they will consume themselves in the issue. They will consume themselves with every little preset of what is transpiring, every negative bill of news, every tragedy, every disaster, every worst case scenario, that their whole being is fueled and their whole being is saturated with panic and fear because that's all they feast on, that's all they eat, that's all they consume, they will trail and they will blaze and they will be on the internet looking for more information, more information, and the constant diet of negativity, tragedy, disaster, and bad episodes utterly consumes them, and it explodes in absolute fear, terror, and a lack of faith. What Zechariah is doing is, he's listening to the word, the logos, he's listening to something that can feed him, he's listening to the word of his creator who is in control who sits on the front of us and he's allowing the constellation or consolation of those words to inject into his soul to empower him to invigorate him and to give his soul faith and a trust and a confidence and as the Greeks would say the word petis faith he is being persuaded by God's word. He's being persuaded by the word of God. That is where he's placing his rock. And he stands upon that rock, which is the word. One, chapter one, verse 14. I am jealous for Jerusalem. Literally, I have been not now only, but in times past, even when I did not show it, and am jealous. God's form of jealousy is this, with the tender love which allows not what it loves to be injured. I am jealous for Jerusalem, although God used foreign nations to punish Israel, those nations went beyond the limits he had set. Psalm 68, verse 16. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. I am jealous for Jerusalem. He takes himself to be highly affronted by the injuries and the indignities that are done to his church. As if he had been formerly by the iniquities found in the church. The Godhead are smarting, but they don't ask for a course of action. They already have one. Where my temple stood, 
those gates of Zion, which I love more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Psalms 87.2. God in this statement, in Psalms 87.2, is not vague or uncertain or indecisive in regards to what he thinks about the ecclesia and the church. There are those who will pontificate and they will espouse that you, we, we don't need a church. You can pray in your bedroom. You know, I know God in my own personal way. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to meet together with other people. I just pray my, my church and my temples in my home. And God says, no, I prefer the gathering of people, my people. I prefer the gates of Zion where the people of God gather, get together, more than I love the dwellings of Jacob, more than I love where people are praying in their bedrooms, more than I love where people are serving me in their own homes solely, more than I love those who do not commit to the body of Christ, but they are mavericks, they are what people who are lone rangers, they go it alone, God says no, I don't endorse that, I don't sanction that, Christ died to establish the the body of Christ and he says he loves it when his people come together when they come together as the body of Christ when this isolation is finished yes the whole social media is a very productive and it's a very practical tool but do not forsake the gathering of God's people as some have done in the last days go to your local church go to your local fellowship meet together with other saints, be the ecclesiastes, be those who meet together, be those who are in fellowship with one another, he prefers the gates of Zion where there is gathering than the individual dwellings of Jacob, that doesn't negate obviously your personal responsibility and fellowship and relationship with Christ in our private homes but let's not get it twisted where we push aside and where we kick aside and where we start to evade the church no he wants us to meet in communion and be together still in verse 14 in Zion and for Zion, which especially he had chosen to put his name there and there to receive the worship of his people, the hill which God desires to dwell in. Wherever God chooses to put his name, that will be the vessel of target for destruction. Christ has set his church on a hill, so it's a target. Christ has placed you in high places according to Ephesians, so you're a target. However, as we see in our narrative, there are ethereal, noble, angelic watchers and regal celestial riders are walking the land, meticulously observing the situation of planet Earth. One man said, his name was John Locke, English philosopher, physician, and influential in the whole Enlightenment movement in the 1600s. Every man 
has no other end but the preservation of property. The angel of the Lord is looking to protect his property, the people of God, Israel. And today, the church, Zechariah, verse 14, we continue. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous, Kanor. I'm excited with zealous anger. I am zealous for Jerusalem. I'm passionate for Jerusalem. I'm excited for Jerusalem. We are cloned of the same egg when we have a passion for the things of God. It's very difficult to try to square someone who says they love the things of God, but they're so passive in regards to their pursuit of the things of God. When they articulate religious statements and religious platitudes, but when it comes down to the things of God, there is such a deep-seated apathy. They talk about being religious and pursuing the things of Christ and loving Christ, but there is such a real kind of toxic passivity. And they would say, well, that's just my way. Well, Jesus' way, God's way, is he is zealous about his kingdom. He's zealous about the things of his father. He's zealous about the things of heaven. He's zealous. He demonstrates passion. A zealous anger for Jerusalem. A zealous anger for his church who are under siege. A zealous anger. Do we have a zeal for our church? Do we have a zeal for the things of God? Do we have a zeal in order to serve? Do we have a zeal in order to volunteer for ministries? Do we have a zeal that we don't need to be asked, but we put ourselves forward because we are zealous in order to participate. We are zealous in order to contribute. We are zealous in order to get involved. We are zealous in order to take off the burden over or from just a small group of people who might be shouldering all the work. Are you zealous for your kingdom and for the church? Christ says, I'm zealous. In terms of Hebrew grammar, when he says I'm zealous, it's in what the Hebrews call the pill perfect. A grammatical meaning, meaning pill means intensive action. When Christ says, or the angel of the Lord says, I'm zealous, this is an intensive action. He's intense about Jerusalem. There is a explosion within his soul there's a kinetic energy when it comes to Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal pill perfect when we look at the 
perfect part of that in grammatical connotations. It speaks about something which is depicted as an event in a whole. He doesn't need to be more zealous. He's completely zealous as a whole. He is zealous. He is the complete article in demonstrating what zeal for a thing can be. And the thing is Jerusalem. The thing is the people of God. The thing is Zion, the kingdom. He has a perfect zeal for you and for me. Interludes. As the son speaks to the father in this passage, to you, father omnipotent, immutable, immortal, infinite, eternal king, the author of all being, fountain of light, father yourself, invisible amidst the glorious brightness where you sit, throned, inaccessible. But when you shade the full copious blaze of your beams and through a cloud drawn about you like a radiant shrine, dark with excessive brightness, your train of your robes appear, yet over all dazzle heaven that the brightest seraphim approach not with both wings, they veil their eyes. Account me man, I for man's sake will leave your bosom and this glory next to you freely put off and for man lastly I die well please on me let death wreak all his rage. Under death's gloomy power, I shall not long lie vanquished. You have given me to possess life in myself forever, Prince of life. Though now to death I yield, and them death and justice due, all that of me which can die, yet that debt will then be paid. However, you will not leave me in the loathsome grave, his prey, nor suffer my unspotted soul forever with corruption there to dwell. But I shall rise victorious and subdue my vanquisher, spoiled of his vaunted spoil. Death, his death wound, shall then receive, and death will stoop inglorious, his mortal sting. I will disarm through the ample air in triumph high, shall lead hell captive and terrorize hell, and show the powers of darkness bound. Father, at that sight you will be pleased. Out of heaven shall you look down and smile, while by myself raised I ruin all my foes. Death, my lost enemy, and with death's carcass I will glut the grave. A surplus of death remains. Saturate the grave with death's corpse. Then with a multitude of my raptured redeemed shall enter heaven long absence and return and this is a legitimate reminisce in john 17 verse 4 i have glorified you on earth i have finished the work which you have given to me to do 
And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is a legitimate reminisce. A reminiscing of what life used to be. Reminiscing of the good things of life. Reminiscing of the times of joy, the times of wonder. There will be a time when Jesus will reminisce in chapter 17. Reminiscing of his time in the throne room. Reminiscing of his time with being with his father. Reminiscing of the time with angelic beings being around. Reminiscing of the time of a kingdom which is saturated with tranquility and wonder. Reminiscing, but it's a legitimate reminisce. It's a legitimate reminisce. Verse 15, I am sore displeased. God had been angered indeed with his people. With their enemies, he was angered with a great anger. And that the more because they were at ease in unfeeling self-enjoyment amid the miseries of others. At this point, the angel of the Lord is praying to God the Father. Prayer is powerful. And it's going to have a powerful effect upon the first person of the dream team. It's going to be able to elicit a response. For that is the power of prayer. Tertullian. An early church father lived round about the hundreds and two hundred AD. He said in regards to prayer, in the past, prayer was able to bring down punishment, rout armies, withhold the blessing of rain. Now, however, the prayer of the just turns aside the whole anger of God, keeps vigil for his enemies, pleads for his persecutors. Is it any wonder that it can call down water from heaven when it could obtain fire from heaven as well? Prayer is the one thing that can conquer God. But Christ has willed that it should work no evil and has given it all power over good. Prayer. In verse 15, I am exceedingly, I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. Sha'anon, with the nations who are secure. Sha'anon, literally those nations who are taking it easy. When my people are at the bottom of the hollow. For I was a little angry. And they helped, but with evil intent. Verse 15, they helped forward the affliction. 
He is wroth with the nations at ease because he delivered his people to be corrected, but they used cruelty towards those delivered. He intended his people to be amended as a son by a schoolmaster. But they set themselves to slay and punish them as an enemy. I was but a little displeased with my people and designed to correct them moderately. But those that were employed as instruments of the correction cost off all pity. God's displeasure with his people is temporary and for their chastening. With the heathen oppressors, it is final and fatal. Jeremiah 30 verse 11, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, because the nations went too far. It is possible to rightly and accurately rebuke someone, to take them to task. But there is a potential that you can take it too far, that you exceed the boundaries that Christ wanted you to go. These nations were being utilized in order to chastise Israel. But God is making the point, you went too far. You helped forward their affliction, afflicted my people more than I desired. The heathen sought the utter extinction of Judah to gratify their own ambition and revenge. I did wound to bind up, God would say. You did wound to kill. I wound or I would have my people pruned. But Babylon, you struck at the root Babylon, you just went too far. Yes, I utilized you in order to chastise my people. Yes, I used you in order to discipline my people. Yes, I used you that you would bring some correction to my people. But Babylon, you just went too far. Isaiah 47, 5. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the lady of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I had profaned my inheritance and given them into your hands. And you showed them no mercy. You went too far. You went too far. Frederick Douglass, U.S. social reformer, a former slave, abolitionist, orator, statesman, lived in the 1800s. He said, I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. 
The angel of the Lord is praying this prayer. The angel of the Lord is crying out to the first person of the Godhead. But he's going to undertake more than just a prayer. He's going to come in flesh. He's going to come to earth. His legs are going to move him upon the land of Israel. His prayer is going to be more than just speaking to his father, but his prayer is going to also manifest in an action, an action of him walking and having his being amongst fellow men, but still being deity, an action of looking at a piece of wood and knowing that his body, his eternal deity will be hanging upon that piece of wood, upon the cross, for the sins of mankind. His prayer would turn into action, interlude. As the angel of the Lord speaking to God the Father, they have a two-way communication. And we know that because Zechariah gets feedback of consoling words, which was the manifestation and was the outcome of the conversation between the angel of the Lord, between the uncreated angel, between he who is the word and the word was made flesh, he who is the second person of the dream team of the Godhead. And there's communication in this interlude as the father speaks to the son. Hail, holy light. Offspring of heaven, firstborn of the eternal, co-eternal beam, perfect expression of me, unblamed since I am light and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity. Dwelt then you in me, bright effulgence of my bright essence. One with me in nature, one with me in being truly son this is a legitimate reminisce O thou in heaven and earth the only peace found out for mankind under wrath O you are my soul companion my son sharing same divine nature well you know how dear to me are my works neither is man the least though last created that for him I spare you, my son, from my bosom and right hand to save by losing you a while. The whole human race already lost. You, my son, therefore, whom you only can redeem, their nature also to your nature join. And be yourself man among men on earth made flesh when time shall come to pass of virgin seed by wondrous birth. Be you in Adam's room, the head of all mankind, though Adam's son, as in Adam perish all men. So in you, as from a second root, shall be restored as many as are restored. Without you, none restored. Adam's crime makes guilty all Adam's sons. 
Your marriage, my son, imputed shall absolve them who renounce their own both righteousness and unrighteous deeds and live in you transplanted and from you receive new life. So you be made man as is most just shall satisfy and extricate for man you be judged and die and die in rise and rising with man you raise your brethren ransom with your own dear life your own dear blood my son my begotten my morning star this is a legitimate reminisce verse 16 a line shall be stretched forth over Jerusalem before when it stood. This had been done to destroy. God used this line to destroy. Now when destroyed is going to be used to rebuild. The temple was built then when the foundations of the walls were not yet laid. In a man's sight, it seemed more provident walls be first builded. That temple might be builded more securely. To God, however, in whom alone most firm stay, it seemed otherwise. Ascalos, the Europonted Spartan king who lived in the 400s, when someone else asks why Sparta lacked fortification walls, Sparta was like or unlike any other Greek city-state. Every other Greek city-state, Athens, whether it be Thebes, whatever other city-state, they all used to have walls in order to protect their city. Sparta was different. Sparta did not have walls. When another Greek person asks the king of Sparta, Agelos, why don't your city have walls? This is what King Agelos said. He pointed to the citizens the Spartan citizens under arms and said, these are Spartan walls, meaning the people. It's the Spartan citizens who are its walls. When the temple was rebuilt, they rebuilt the temple, but they never built the walls. Society, mankind, the Samaritans who were dogging them, people around would be saying, why would you do that? That does not make sense. But it makes sense to an almighty God because God is the people's wall. It is God who protects the people. It is God who intervenes. It is God in this prayer who's able and ready at a heartbeat in order to move his mighty hand in order to help his people through the power of prayer, through the power of intercession, through the power of speaking to him, through the power of communicating to the Godhead. 
It was Arthur T. Pearson who said, let the spirit be lacking and there may be wisdom of words, but not wisdom of God and the powers of oratory, but not the power of God, the demonstration of argument and the logic of schools, but not the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, the all-convincing logic of his lightning flash, such as convinced Saul before the Damascus gate. When the Spirit was outpoured, the disciples were all filled with power from on high. The most unlettered tongues could silence gainsayers and with its new fire burnt its way through obstacles as flames fanned by mighty winds sweep through the forest. Power of prayer. The anointing that falls and emanates from prayer. God becomes our war. God becomes our protection. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And the surveyor's line, a surveyor's line, figuratively to rule, shall be stretched, not to bend away, shall be stretched. God is willing to bend things. God is willing to make things malleable. God is willing in order to twist things so his will, his purpose, manipulate the environment for his people to have the outcome that he desires them to have, shall be stretched, not all, bend things in order, will bend the Red Sea. Moses, go to the Red Sea, lift up your rod, I'll bend the wind in order to blaze a trail through the Red Sea that the people can escape. Stretched out over Jerusalem. Interlude. The son to his father, my father, your voice as that of a thousand waters, a voice infinitely more beautiful than either angelic or human imagination had ever the capacity con to conceive. The voice that had thrust a million flaming suns into orbit. The voice that had fashioned 10,000 times 10,000 galaxies. The voice that laid the boundaries of the firmament of a million solar systems. The voice that allotted the path of a million, million moons. And created lightning, the tempest and the hail. All through your voice, through your word, through your son, who I am. Your word. For by me all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through me and for me, the uncreated angel of the Lord. Father, this is a legitimate reminisce. 
the Mount of the North, our throne room, where the Trinity, the dream team dwell. It was here that the lightnings and the roaring have its origin. And it was here where dwelt the one who was light itself and from whom all light received its source. The one before whom all heavens and galaxies fled. The one before whom all heavens fall prostrate as though dead in the very majesty and the awe of you. The one whose hair and head were white like snow from the very radiance of your glory, Father. Whose eyes flash like flames of living fire with the brilliance of the multitudes of your discernments and great and infinite tender compassions for your beauty is indescribable and to those few who have ever looked upon your face they could not but hear your name and weep their faces burned radiant and they wept unceasingly with the awe and the wonder of it for your tender mercies and your compassion are unfathomable we, the Godhead, we, one voice, yet as free, and we are free, yet as one, and so as one, we, the Godhead, dwell in the throne room, and as free, we are indivisible, we cannot be divided, and we are indissoluble, we cannot be destroyed, for we, the Trinity, the Godhead, the Dream Team, and so alone, we dwell as the great and sacred mystery, Father, this is a legitimate reminisce. As we close, the denouement, the denouement, it's where we pull all the strands together and the questions are answered. What happened with Christ and the fig tree? It's because of the leaves, because of the leaves. Jesus in Mark eleven twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you again. But why curse the fig tree? What is it that you saw that made you curse this fig tree? Mark 11 verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught saying to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught saying to them, it is not written, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Christ, like many, you express your frustrations by throwing over tables and reading the riot act to evil liberty takers. So why additionally curse the tree? 
is because of the leaves. Because of the leaves. When the Lord saw the fig tree by the wayside, apparently flourishing, he went to gather some figs, being on the wayside, it was not private but public property. And any traveller had the equal right to its fruit, as it was not as yet the time for gathering in the fruits, and yet about the time when they were ready to be gathered. Our Lord with propriety expected to find some. But as this happened, about five days before the Passover on which Christ suffered, the Passover that year fell on the beginning of April. It has been asked, how could the Lord expect to find ripe figs in the end of March? Answer, because figs were ripe in Judea as early as the Passover. And additionally, the fig tree puts forth its fruit first before it bears its leaves. The fig tree bears its fruit first before it produces its leaves. It was because of the leaves, Mark eleven twelve. Now the next day when Jesus, the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves. He went to see it, if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was the season for figs. In response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Why? Because of the leaves. The Greek word for leaves is phulon. The word comes from a root word called fule. Fule means tribe. Fule means clan. Fule in the New Testament was describing anyone descending from the 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob. The leaves represented Israel, the people of God, the 12 sons of Jacob. Why did he curse the fig tree? He's just gone to the temple. They're not doing what they should be doing inside the temple. He ends up in the temple. He looks around and the whole place is saturated with a den of thieves. The Sadducee Mafia are operating a money-making, racketing operation. He's looked at this and in his fury of soul, traumatized by what he's seen. Because the temple should have been a light for the nations. The very place 
when the Sadducees had their money-making operation, the very place where he's turning over tables was a room designed for the Gentiles. It was a room designed for the nations. It was a room designed for those who weren't Jews, but who potentially wanted to convert to Judaism, or they can hear the word of God go out, or it was a place that they were allowed to be. But these... Sadducees have turned him into a den of thieves and he's vexed and he's angry and he goes to the fig tree and he curses that tree to say, Fule, you won't grow no more. Leaves, tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Jacob, Isichabod, Isichabod. Ezekiel, in 70 AD, a Roman general called Titus will come and wipe this temple out. He'll leave the temple like the fig tree. He'll leave the temple that the very people who desecrated my temple and the portion and the part of the temple for the nations. You'll be having to leave your homeland of Israel and go to abide and find dwelling and safety and safe haven in those very nations. The temple will be a fig tree. The 12 sons of Jacob, you are going to wither away temporarily from this land. Because of what I saw, because of the trauma of what the temple has turned into, you are now going to turn into this withering fig tree. Denormant. Denormant. I ask the question, who is man's best friend? An article said, after dogs, horses may be man's best friend. New research suggests based on their ability to understand subtle eye and body movements, horses can grasp human disposition relatively well. Depending on how horses are domesticated and trained in future, they may have the potential to catch up with dogs as being man's best understanding friend, says Discoverer magazine. A recent study conducted by Carol Sankey of the University of Rennes, for example, determined that horses recall positive interactions with individuals even when the horse and the human are separated for months. Zechariah 1.7 on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idol, the prophet. I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red Adam, ruddy, to show blood in the face horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. The man on a horse is riding on a red horse. The question is for the angel of the Lord, what transpired for approximately over a thousand years to you? 
What occurred to you while you've been sitting on your throne? What has occurred in your mind since being in heaven all of those years? How close was your relationship to that horse, riding upon that horse? Because something we know changed. In Revelation 19.11 it says, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head he wore many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped, bapto, completely clothed to cover holy with a fluid. What is the fluid that your robe was saturated with? The fluid was blood. Hyema refers to the seat of life. His robe is covered in blood. In Zechariah 1.7, he was riding on a blood-colored horse. What represents war? What represents judgment? But now at the second coming, he comes back. The horse is no longer red. He's red. The horse is no longer wearing the color red. He's red. The horse is no longer blood colored. He's blood colored. Something changed. The war, the judgment, the empathy for his people, the color, it's almost started to drain away from the horse. Or even if it be a different horse, the blood got into him. The redness got into him. The whole affair started to seep even deeper and deeper into his heart. So now he comes back for the second coming and it's not his blood. It's a blood of judgment. It's a blood to make war. He's traded places with his horse. He swapped around with his horse. The horse no longer will be wearing blood. I will wear the blood. I will go to war because this is close to my heart. Isaiah 63 verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This is the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. I trod in the winepress alone and from my people. No one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is at in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. It's as though the angel of the Lord had the red blood slowly permeating and moving through his garments. And Isaiah said, it's reached my heart. 
My horse is not going to be red. My horse is going to be white because white for victory. Like Caesar, he rode the white horse because he was a conqueror. Like Pompey, he rode the white horse because he was a conqueror. At times it says Alexander had the white horse. Why? Because he is a conqueror. Jesus Christ is a conqueror. But now the blood is not on the horse. Now the redness is not on the horse. It's inside him. He wants judgment for his people. Vengeance for his people. He wants to put things right. And it's burning him within his heart. The last annulment. We spoke about a young man or... We spoke about two people traveling in the underpass in East London, but they're not talking to one another. Who are they? Why don't they speak to each other? What's transpiring? A woman living in Essex is upstairs in clearing out her attic. Dusty floorboards exposed wooden beams with visible pipes and wiring. A pothole windows covered with grime and dead flies. A hatch door and a fold-down staircase. A light bulb and a pull string. Sunlight filtering in through the cracks near the eaves. Spiderwebs drifting off the beams and straddling old coat, and straddling old coat strands. Old faded boxes with contents written on the side. Rickety furniture, a broken vacuum, a corner filled with old children's toys. Seeing the toys, the woman lets out a solitary tear. Christmas decoration, dusty sheets covering antique moats of dust dancing in the shaft of the light coming in through small window stacks of old board games. Seeing the old board games, the woman lets out another tear. Dead moths on the floor, a fly bumping against the porch glass, searching for a way out. Taxidermy collections, a Dressmakers, dummy, old clothing stored in garbage bags, wedding items, boxes of books and school manuals. The woman then breaks down crying. The school books were too much. Who is the woman? The woman. This woman is a Christian mother of the young 23-year-old man walking in East London. Walking in the East London underpass with someone else. She's been praying for a backslidden son for years. He was brought up in church in Leighton, but fell away from the faith. Now he's living on the edge. Typical prodigal son. The reason her son is not talking to the other person who's been with him for more than three days is the son does not know the other person is actually there. The other person is invisible. The other person is not of the same dimension as the son. The other person is a holy rider, a celestial being, an angel. This angel turned up three days ago after the dream team, the Trinity dispatched the angel because of the heartfelt prayers of his praying mother in Essex. 
The angel is there to ensure the son avoids any possible sources of conflict. For example, danger from a cyclist or a driver, dangerous debris like broken glass, used needles, an underpass collapsing, being caught in the underpass during an earthquake. But tonight, however, this angel specifically is there to protect him from a nearby rival gang. The angel will ensure the rival gang does not see this young man tonight. But it's only for tonight. Other nights, that's between the mother and the godhead, a.k.a. the dream team. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The end of the dream team, the Son of God. I pray that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. Next week, we're starting the last days series called Embers of Civilization. The series will start with a person called Nice Guy, a.k.a. otherwise known as Antichrist. We'll start that next week. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. God bless.